0: everybody! Welcome back to my channel, thanks so much for tuning in. My name is Dana Troopiana, and I cover infamous gangsters every week in a true crime-like format. My show, Mob Times, comes out every Tuesday morning at 10am. Most of the time. Well, it's Tuesday, it's 10am, so here I am. If you're new here, welcome. If you've been here before, I hope you know already how much I love and appreciate every single one of you guys. I've been giving a little bit of a life update at the start of my videos, but honestly, I'm starting to see that it's not really making so much of a difference. Since today's gangster is so full of information, it's definitely gonna be an extremely long episode and to be honest, I think that this might be a two-parter. And I've only done that once before with the Cray twins. but. There's a lot here, and I want to cover as much as humanly possible, but I can't do that in a short time. So it's looking like more than likely this is going to be a two part. So I apologize if you guys don't like that kind of thing. With the amount of times I've been requested to do Sam DiStefano, I'm thinking that more than likely a lot of people are going to enjoy this episode. They've been waiting for it. So hopefully the fact that it turned into a two-part episode is a good thing, and you guys are going to enjoy sitting and listening to the crazy shit I'm going to go over tonight. So I'm going to go ahead and just skip through all the life updates and everything. I'm not going to do any of that, and we're just going to jump right into tonight's gangster. So let's get started. Stefano Jr., also known as Mad Sam, was born on September 13, 1909, in Streeter, Salle, Illinois. He was the son of Samuel DiStefano Sr. and Rosalie DiStefano. Her maiden name was Brasco. Both of his parents, Salvatore Samuel DiStefano Sr., as well as Rosalie A. Brasco DiStefano, were born in Villa Rosa, Provincia di Enna, in Sicily, Italy. Both parents immigrated to the United States in 1903, so it doesn't look like they followed the pattern of your typical couple where the man comes ahead and gets everything set up and then the wife follows. It looks like they made the voyage together in 1903. While his father was the breadwinner, His mother was a full-time housewife who would later live on the contributions of her children. So pretty much his dad took care of his mom, which is what we see a lot of the time in Italian households. And then when his dad was no longer able to provide, the children stepped up and took care of the mother. Sam had three brothers and three sisters, so seven kids in total. And that might be the sweet spot for Italian families. My mom had seven kids in her family too, and I just hear that number a lot when it comes to how many kids there were. There's a lot of families that had exactly seven kids. Giuseppe Josephine Stefano was the first child born, and she was born in 1899, and she was born in their hometown in Italy. The second of the De Stefano siblings was Angeline De Stefano, and she was born March 9th, 1904, so she was the first born in America. So when the couple came to America, they only had Josephine with them. So now Angeline and on, they're all born in America. So Angeline was born on March 9th, 1904, James was born in 1906. Michael was born on March 7th, 1907, so pretty close to Angeline's birthday. After Michael, Sam was born in 1909. Catherine was born in Chicago on October 19th, 1911. And the youngest sibling, Mario, was born on March 21st, 1915. So, a lot of these kids have a March birthday. Like, a lot of them. The Di Stefano family relocated to Heron, Illinois, not long after he was born because his father was able to find work in a coal mine in Heron. After the Heron Massacre's labor related unrest, the Di Stefano family ended up relocating north and they went to Chicago's Little Italy. And now, I want to briefly go over what the Heron Massacre is, because I can't just say something wild, like that a massacre took place and this guy was in the area, and not tell you what actually happened. Remember, I have chapters on every single one of my videos, so if you don't care at all what happened in the Heron Massacre, just go ahead and skip to the next chapter and you don't have to hear about it, but it's super interesting, so I would stick around if I were you. The Heron Massacre took place in Heron, Illinois, which was a coal mining town, on June 21st and 22nd of 1922, which is interesting because it's really close to when Prohibition took place. I wonder if that had anything to do with anything. Prohibition started January 21st, and by six months in, the laborers of the country are literally revolting. I'm not trying to take anything away, because this is a really sad event. Everything that happened is really sad. But it is a little funny that within six months of Prohibition, we've got riots happening on the streets of America. So the Heron Massacre is a labor revolt, and a lot of people ended up dying there. It was a strike of the coal miners, and it was led by the United Mine Workers of America, and it was led pretty much to get better working conditions. The owner of the coal mine that's at the epicenter of this national strike that's about to start is W.J. Lester, and he owns a company called the Southern Illinois Coal Company. Now, initially, Lester is cool with the strike. He's like, whatever, I don't really care, I used to be a working man, I get it, you want to go on strike, that's fine, you go right ahead. The strike was initiated after there was some initial negotiations, and in those negotiations, the union allowed a much smaller number of employees to continue working so that the coal mine didn't just, like, up and die. So the negotiations failed. They said, okay, we're going to go on strike, but they did say, like, okay, if, let's say they have 150 employees, they said, like, okay, 20 employees can go work just so that, like, the entire thing doesn't fall apart while we're on strike. But... This goes on for a little longer than Lester thought it was going to go on for. And that's a problem because this coal mine, it's pretty new. And Lester, he took on a lot of debt in order to get the startup costs to start this business. The strike started in April. And when June rolled around, there was a national shortage of coal in the entire country of America since so many employees on the main coal mines, they're not working. This shortage drove prices of coal way up, and those higher prices were starting to look real appetizing to a debt-riddled Lester. Lester made the foolish mistake of bringing in scabs. Scabs are people who come in and they work while union members are on strike. If you've ever been a part of a union, you know... What a big no-no that is. Labor unions are no freaking joke. And scabs are treated very badly. Like, very badly. Like, if you think that unions are bad on, like, construction sites that don't hire union workers, like the guys that bring those big-ass rats outside of a building, that looks like child's play when you see a union dealing with scabs. So when the scabs come in, shit starts to go down the striking union members, they start shooting at the scabs. And once the shooting starts, all hell breaks loose. And they began an armed siege to take control of the mine. There were armed guards at the mine because tensions had been brewing for a long time. So Lester had armed guards at the mines. And those armed guards ended up shooting and killing three striking union members. The next day, Tensions continued to rise and violence continued to go on. The union members killed the superintendent of the site as well as 18 out of 50 scabs. So there's 50 scabs that came to work and 18 of them were killed. And these are like brutal deaths. I'm talking about like when you're watching a movie, and you see a death, and you're like, oh, shit, that was rough. Like, those kind of deaths. These are brutal freaking deaths that these guys are dying. By the end of the massacre, 23 people had been killed. The supply house had been dynamited and burned down. An oil house was leveled. And there's just mayhem absolutely everywhere. So the Stefano family, they're living in Heron when all this shit goes down. And the family is like, oh, hell no, like, we got to get the fuck up out of here. Not only are they living in Heron, but Samuel is an employee at the coal mine that all of this shit went down on. So I feel like for him to just, like, jet off and, like, leave the entire county that they're in, I'm gonna assume that he may have gotten involved in the killing of those 23 people. And that might be why they needed to vacate the vicinity so quickly. They hopped in the car and headed north and ended up in Chicago's Little Italy. They didn't go too far, they stayed in Illinois, but they just moved closer to people of their own kind. These are Sicilians and that's what they do, they stick with Sicilians. When they got to Chicago, Samuel Di Stefano Jr., he worked as a grocery store clerk. And after that, he became a real estate salesperson. It's hard to have such an abrupt vocational switch. He can't be a coal miner anymore, and that's what he does. So he's just pretty much hopping job to job to job, trying to find something new, and just trying to find a way to keep food on the table and pay the bills for his wife and seven kids. As far as Sam Jr., which I don't know why Sam Jr. got the name Sam Jr. He wasn't the first boy that was born. James was born before him, so I don't really know. But as far as Mad Sam, Chicago, Illinois, in Little Italy, not the greatest area. It's a rough area. So he pretty much grew up his entire life in this area of Chicago, Illinois, in Little Italy, and while growing up in this area, he became involved in organized crime at a really young age. The woman that he would come to marry was named Anita and she was born in a small town in illinois in 1915. sam DiStefano stefano jr and anita DiStefano stefano ended up getting married and had three children together i really tried my best to get as much information about mad sam's personal life as i could especially regarding his children but i guess they kept themselves hidden because of how bad their father's reputation is. Like, he's a well-known, ruthless criminal who found joy in seeing other people suffer. So I don't think it's crazy that they hid their names. They didn't want to be known as the kid of Sam Stefano. Like, it's bad. Even Roy De Mayo's kids were like, yeah, my dad was Roy De Mayo." Sam Stefano is worse. So I get it. I get why they never wanted to be publicly tied to this psychopath. So you can't find any of the kids' names. And good for them for staying out of the spotlight as being his kid. Samuel DiStefano Sr., DiStefano's father, passed away on June 9th, 1942 in Brenman Township in Illinois. He ended up passing away at 77 years old of natural causes. So nothing crazy happened. He just... Died. His burial took place at Mount Carmel Catholic Cemetery Hillside in Cook County, Illinois. I really tried to avoid Mad Sam Stefano just because so many people have done videos on him. Every piece of information that's out there is out there. Everybody knows it. And I didn't feel like I could add much to the conversation, but as I said, a lot of people have asked me to cover him, so this is just one of those checkboxes I'm checking off so that when people say, hey, have you covered him, I could say, yeah, there's a video. But to be honest, I tried to avoid this dude at all costs because of all the scraps that I knew before him, like I didn't research him, I didn't want anything to do with any knowledge of him. But I just always envisioned him as like Richard Kuklinski if Kuklinski ever actually did half the shit that he actually claimed to do. DiStefano, he's just like that sick, twisted individual that Kuklinski wanted everybody to believe that he was. If you watched my Kuklinski video, I talk a lot about the things that Kuklinski claims that he did, but it's like proven that he didn't do it. Most of the stuff that he claimed that he did, he didn't do. But Di Stefano, he did do that type of shit. This is the man that actually did carry out torturous murders, actually did enjoy hearing the screams of his victims, and actually did all kinds of sick and twisted shit that Kuklinski always swore he did, but it's just proven time and time again that he was a liar. He didn't do most of the shit that he said that he did. Di Stefano did. He's an evil, sick, twisted, horrible man that should have been taken off the streets way earlier than he actually was. Half of the damage that he inflicted on this world could have been avoided if only women mattered more in the eyes of the law. Now don't X out my video because you heard that this is not like a feminist rant, but you'll see why I said that in one second. On September 12th, 1926, Stefano was apprehended in Chicago and handed over to the Niles Police Department as a wanted person for escaping from prison. This is one of the first records of him and it happened in January 1st, 1927. This whole altercation happened after he had been arrested for a minor offense and then he broke out of jail. Just like absolutely stupid. Kid was set to be out in like a few days and decided to break himself out of jail and set himself up with a nice little criminal record that would follow him for the rest of his life. In November of 1927, Sam DiStefano and his co-conspirator Ralph Orlando were in court to answer for allegations regarding an attack on a 17-year-old girl. Now here is where I'm going to give a trigger warning. The story of Mad Sam DiStefano is vile. He's done the most heinous shit you could ever think about. I am gonna talk about a lot of really bad stuff in this video. From here on out, we're gonna talk a lot about sexual assault. If that is a trigger for you, leave this video. It's going to trigger you. I'm going to talk about it multiple times. If that's something that you're sensitive about, there is no shame in just not watching this one. For this case in particular, according to the prosecution, the girl had been forcibly dragged into a car on August 19th, 1927, and she was driven to a garage where she was subsequently molested and raped by seven men. Both Orlando and De Stefano were convicted of rape, and while Orlando was given a 10-year prison sentence, Stefano received only a three-year sentence. De Stefano only got three years because he never actually raped the girl. Everybody took turns in this little seven-way gang rape, and as De Stefano was getting ready to take his turn, the cops showed up and broke it up and arrested everybody. Like, they rescued this poor little girl, this 17-year-old child, and all the grown men were arrested. So even though DiStefano never actually raped the girl, he was one of the two dudes, him and Orlando, that forcibly grabbed the girl and brought her to the garage and set her up in that situation. And he had all intentions of raping this girl. So honestly, I think every single one of these dudes should have immediately gotten like 20 years each. If you think about it, like, what kind of future do you foresee for a man that is involved in this kind of attack. You don't just gang rape a child and then wake up the next day and be a stand-up citizen. Not in three years, not in 10 years, not ever. If the law viewed what happened to this poor innocent child as what it was, a horrendous assault that probably ruined the rest of this poor girl's life, he would have been taken off the streets and half the shit that we're gonna talk about in this video wouldn't have happened. And this sick fuck could have just rotted it in jail. Could have taken his weird-ass sexual proclivities out on other inmates or something. But because the justice system doesn't view women being assaulted and having the rest of their lives ruined as that serious, he walked away with only three years. You'd get more time if you boosted a fucking television from a store. It is disgusting. In the world of organized crime, Sam Stefano, who's commonly referred to as the king of juice loans, was a very infamous character. He ended up loaning money to those who needed loans and that's how he made a living. And his interest rates were so high that it was nearly impossible for borrowers to repay the loans. So juice loans is the foundation in which Sam built his entire business. A juice loan is just pretty much a very high interest loan. And like you pay an interest rate every week. And it would be as high as 25% every week sometimes. And it didn't matter how difficult it was to pay it back. Like you could have a thousand dollar debt and end up with $25,000 in debt. And guess what? You're paying that every week. He ended up getting the moniker of king of juice loans because of his harsh methods that he employed to pressure debtors into making payments. Nevertheless, this man's aggression extended way past just like pursuing debt. Like, he was known to give loans to people that nobody else would touch. And it was strictly because he viewed it as fun if they didn't pay. He liked being able to hurt people. So when he would give a loan and he knew that person wasn't going to be able to pay it, he just delighted in hurting them. We're going to talk a lot about the torture chamber that he has set up in his house, but you could find the most risky lender and they would not make a loan to a person and Sam Stefano would do it gladly because when they weren't able to make their payments, guess what? Sam Stefano gets to have fun. Whenever anybody owed him money, even the tiniest of sums, like you could owe him $20, he would just torture and murder you. His methods included frequent mutilation and dismemberment and... He delighted in it. It was disgusting, and cruel, and nasty, and he just enjoyed hurting people. The majority of people that ended up taking a loan from him, they knew how crazy this dude was, so they didn't even consider not repaying their debt. And that's why he ended up becoming so successful, because everybody knew the crazy shit he did if you didn't pay, so they knew to pay. The gang that he got involved with at first was the 42 Gang. The 42 gang originated in Chicago's Little Italy neighborhood, so he grew up around the 42 gang, and it was notorious for its involvement in various criminal activities. They would pull off bank robberies, extortion schemes, it's like a little mini gang that kids get their start in before they move up to the big leagues of, like, the real mafia. At one point, the 42 gang was led by a notorious figure in the criminal underworlds, Momo Giancana. Under his leadership, the gang became known as the farm team for the mafia because a lot of the members would go on to become affiliated with larger organized crime syndicates. So they would go on and become members of the New York mafia or Chicago. A lot of them went into Chicago because it's in Chicago. Sam Giancana would go to run all the mafia in the south like he went to florida sam J and Kana is his own little situation we'll do that one day right now we're we're on this fucking mess the members of the 42 gang were easily recognizable by their trademark white fedoras so they would walk around everywhere they went with white fedoras and that would let everybody know like hey i'm a member of the 42 gang they often carried a large amount of cash and that was usually acquired from criminal activities obviously they were known for their brutal enforcement methods, and everybody knew, like, if you cross the 42 gang, you're probably not gonna live to see the other end of that. Notable members of the 42 gang included Sam DiStefano and his brothers, so two of his brothers went into the 42 gang with him. Louis Frodo, Crazy Patsy Stefanelli, Sam Giancana, obviously. Felix Anthony, Milwaukee Phil Aldesirio Paul Battaglia and Fifi Buccieri. And I'm sure that there's a lot more, but those are just like ones that I saw that stood out. The members of the 42 gang, they were kind of considered, like, too risky. They were too much of cowboys to be involved in, like, regular business of the Chicago outfit. So the Chicago outfit would never touch them because they're too risky. They're too crazy. They're young and reckless and wild, and they can't really be tamed. And the mafia doesn't like that because people that can't be tamed, they're a risk. So initially, the Chicago outfit wanted nothing to do with anybody that was in the 42 gang. That ended up changing when Sam Giancana caught the eye of Tony Accardo, and Tony Accardo ended up taking Sam Giancana under his wing and pretty much made him his protege. And Paul Ricca did the same. They both really liked Sam Giancana. Once Giancana was in, he was able to persuade them to bring a bunch of the guys from the 42 gang over to the outfit. And the rest is history, like, once Giancana got in, they became very enmeshed and a lot of people from the 42 gang would go on to become made men in the Chicago outfit. When Sam Giancana first started working for the 42 gang, he worked for political boss Joseph Esposito. The gang's name was a reference to the story of Alibaba and the 40 Thieves. So in the story of Alibaba and 40 Thieves, there's 41 people, obviously, Alibaba plus the 40 Thieves. So they considered themselves one better than that story. So they called themselves the 42 gang because Alibaba was 41 and then they had 42. Giancana, he quickly got a reputation as like a really good mobster. He was an exceptional getaway driver. He was an effective earner. He made a lot of money. He was ruthless. He was violent. And he was just a trigger, man. Like, very, very good at all the Chicago outfit guys had to do was point, And Giancana was sick in them. After Esposito's murder, in which Giancana was rumored to be involved. The 42 gang evolved into, like, a de facto extension of the Chicago outfit. Figure the way that, like, the way that Canada's Mafia is an extension of the Bonanno family Same kind of rules. Like, they're just, like, an extension. They're not the Chicago outfit, but they're affiliated. And once that happened, it became a powerful criminal organization and ended up controlling a lot of the illegal activities that happened in the city and obviously because they're affiliated with the outfit they're kicking up to the outfit so the outfit doesn't mind that they're running all these illegal activities because they are paying a tribute to the outfit the outfit's leaders included notable names such as frank the enforcer nitty paul the waiter Rika, and tony joe batters accardo When Giancana came on board, he quickly became one of the outfit's most valued members. He actually ended up taking a leadership position, and he took the position that Accardo was in. Eventually, Sam Giancana would go on to take control of the Chicago outfit from Accardo. Accardo would hand over leadership because he didn't want the heat from the IRS. He just, he didn't want to be the face of the outfit. He wasn't really super happy about the perceived emotion, but he also understood that it was really necessary to protect his own interests and those of the outfit. He also knew that Giancana, he would need his and Rika's approval for any major transactions, so he is still running things behind closed doors. Giancana wasn't just, you know, going off all willy-nilly doing whatever he wanted to, especially hits. He was not allowed to do anything without the express approval of Ocardo and Rika. By staying in the background, Paul Rika and Tony Ocardo were able to avoid imprisonment far longer than their predecessor, Al Capone, had. And they pretty much took the Chicago outfit and turned it from, like, this band of crazy people under Al Capone, and they turned it into a very profitable and prosperous business. Over time, Ocardo ended up taking on a lot more of the high-level decisions because he saw Giancana's potential. He liked Giancana. Giancana was his protege. But he also saw his reckless behavior, and he saw that Giancana kind of had a lack of loyalty. He was given the position of boss and just got all full of himself and was like, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and didn't really stop and realize that, like, okay, maybe you're not all that. So once Accardo started to see those traits in Giancana, he started to take the high level decisions back because he's like, this is a threat. Like, I don't trust you. I don't trust your loyalty. I don't trust you to not go off and do some crazy shit. I'm taking that control back. And he did. In the early 20th century, Paul Rica was a notorious figure in the Chicago Mafia. But in 1919, Rico was indicted for his involvement in the murder of a police officer, and he was looking at a lengthy prison sentence, probably life. To avoid prosecution, Rika decided to flee the country and ended up assuming the name Paul Maglio. He made his way to Cuba and spent several months there like regrouping and ended up setting his sights back on the United States because that's where all mafia members want to be. You don't want to be a mafia member in Cuba or anywhere else. You're going to make the most money in America. That's where they want to be, so he wanted to come back. On August 10th, 1920, Rika arrived in New York City under this new alias. Under the new alias, he was able to blend in with the city's larger Italian-American population. There's no facial recognition. There's no, like, cameras on every corner. You gotta think this is 1919 and 1920. So he was able to just blend in. Nobody ever realized who he was. He cut his hair different, and it was just, that was a wrap. You were never gonna know that this was Salvatore Sam Rika. Under this new alias, Rico was able to quickly rise through the ranks of the Mafia and became a trusted advisor to some of the most powerful figures in the entire organization. He played a significant role in the outfit's expansion, and he was one of the people that were able to help solidify the reputation of the Chicago outfit as a very formidable and powerful criminal organization. Di Stefano would end up encountering the outfit members like Paul Rico and Luis Campagna at the Leavenworth Federal Prison in the 1940s during a one-year prison sentence that, we'll talk about that in a little bit, but that, that's how he came into contact with these guys was he was serving time with them at Leavenworth. Stefano actually ended up getting some money from Rika around $150,000 after he got out of jail. Rika ended up funding Stefano's loan sharking operation with the startup loan. Now, he gives him $150,000, but Rico doesn't really want to deal with Sam Stefano. So he had his brother, Tony Rika, deal with Sam, and he just, like, gave, introduced, like, hey, Tony, this is Sam, Sam, this is Tony, and this is your new friend, he's part of your crew, and just put him in place to deal with Sam and make sure that he was getting payments from the loan and keeping Sam in check so he didn't go too wild. So because of these brutal tactics that he has and because of how wild he is, he becomes a really well-known figure in the criminal underworld and the 1950s. He was highly respected for his expertise in handling all kinds of complex criminal cases and he started to gain a reputation as a fixer. He charged a very high fee for his services of fixing and that would range from anywhere from like $800 for fixing like a major gambling or robbery case or it would go up as high as like for first-degree murder cases. He's like Olivia Pope if Olivia Pope was a psychopathic rapist. During these times, $20,000, that's a lot of money. This is the 1950s. Like, that's a lot of money. Considering at the time, you could buy a suburban, middle-class three-bedroom home for $12,000? 20 grand's a lot. But even though he charged those astronomical prices, people paid them. They knew that he had a lot of power behind him. Sometimes people would have to die for his clients to get off. It just is what it is. And that's how he was a fixer. He wasn't a fixer like he went to court and fought on your behalf. No, he got rid of witnesses. He paid people off. He did what needed to be done. As his reputation as a fixer grew, he started to get corrupt police officers that would work with him. They would arrest somebody, and then they would bring that violator directly to his house. When they brought the criminal to Sam's house, he would negotiate his fee, and he would just discuss the details of the case and how he was going to get them off of the case. If they turn around and say, like, okay, yes, I agree to your terms, now you instantly have a loan with Mad Sam. Let's say you're paying $5,000 to fix something, you now have a $5,000 loan. And if you don't pay it back the next day, things don't go so well for you. Not only do you have a loan, you have a loan that is instantly accruing a VIG. So you have, let's say, $5,000, but you're paying, let's say, 20% a week on that. But it was worth it to a lot of these people because... If they agreed to his terms and they paid him, he would use his connections and he would get a lot of people off of the charges entirely. Or he could get them drastically reduced. Obviously, the cops, the judges, everybody involved is getting a cut of this. They're giving the people that are paying him a break, but he's throwing up a lot of money to these people. But if the person that got the charges pressed on them and then agreed to his services didn't pay, things turned violent quick. He was known for his ruthlessness and he would not hesitate to use any kind of physical force to get what he needed or wanted. Those who failed to pay were often beaten, shot, he peed on a lot of them. To a lot of these people, they were way better off just taking a jail sentence. He was known for his saying, there ain't a case in Chicago I can't fix. In 1955, Sam Giancana, the boss of the Chicago Syndicate, ordered DiStefano and his brother, Mario, to kill their brother Michael. See, Michael had become a drug addict, and he was considered to be a liability to the Syndicate. Despite the fact that Michael was their own flesh and blood, the DiStefano brothers, carried out the hit and they did not hesitate. They shot Michael to death and left his body in the trunk of a car. They didn't shoot him in the head and they did like clean him up. They got him dressed up in a suit. So they made sure to not make it like a brutal scene, but they still killed their brother. When the police found Michael's body, they brought Sam and Mario, obviously, into the station because they're well-known criminals and your brother's dead. We're going to bring you in for questioning. And instead of showing any kind of remorse, sadness, fear, anything, instead of doing any of those things, Sam Stefano immediately started to laugh uncontrollably. Anthony, Tony, the aunt... Spilotro was a notorious mob enforcer in Chicago during the 60s and 70s. Like, he was very well known in the syndicate. He was sent to Vegas by the Chicago outfit to oversee all the illegal activities in the city. But he started going a little wild, and he started attracting a lot of attention from the authorities. Leaders in the outfit sent Joey, the clown Lombardo, to go and like keep an eye on him, get him under control. When Lombardo got there, he's like, yeah, this guy's insane, like, I can't, I can't keep him under control, he's a freaking loose cannon. He can't be trusted, he's going out of his mind, he's doing all kinds of crazy shit. So, the leaders of the Chicago Syndicate ordered Spolocho's brother, Michael, to be killed as a warning to Tony. They sent Frank the German Schweiss and Anthony Tony Z, both of whom were members of Lombardo's crew, so Lombardo trusts them. It's good. Lombardo was making the orders, he put everything in place, but they also sent Sam Mad Sam Di Stefano to manage it and make sure that everything went well. Because the reason that I tell that whole story is just to show you they trust mad Sam Stefano. They trust him to make sure that a hit is going to take place. If they want somebody dead, he's the one that they're gonna send to make sure that that person ends up dead. Despite his involvement in this murder, he is still not considered a made man in the outfit, and by now, I'm sure there's double-digit murders that he's carried out for the Chicago outfit. Becoming a made man just means that you're officially initiated into the mafia and you've taken an oath of loyalty, you're a special person, blah, blah, blah. Most of the people that are watching up until this point, you know what it means to become a made man. DiStefano was never given that title because he was looked at as like a crazy person. He's a loose cannon. He's not predictable. He's not tameable. And he can't be trusted. He's also known for his unpredictable behavior and his tendency to fly off the handle. Like, he's wild. He just does crazy shit out of nowhere for no reason, and it just makes no sense. And you can't trust somebody that makes no sense. Like, even if somebody does something crazy, if you can understand why they did that crazy thing, you can get on board with it. But when someone does something and it's just like, what the fuck, man? Why? Why would you do that? That's when you can't trust them. And that was the kind of person that Sam Stefano was. He's making these crazy decisions. He's doing this crazy shit and it makes no sense. There's no explanation. There's no like, oh, okay, he did it because. It's just because. Because he's a psychopath. So he was never made a made member of the Chicago outfit, thank God. The early 30s were a very crazy time for Sam Stefano. In 1932, he started gambling and bootlegging, and he started pulling off robberies. During a grocery store heist in 1932, he was shot by a police officer. He was able to get away and he didn't get arrested for the robbery, But, he showed up at a hospital on Chicago's west side later that day with a bullet wound and no explanation. He didn't end up going to jail for this, which I'm really surprised, like, if that had happened today, there would be no problem putting him in jail because they'd have the bullet show it came out of the police officer's gun and, you know, bing, bang, boom, you're in jail. But, this is 1932, things don't go that way, and he doesn't end up doing any time for this grocery store heist. At this point in his mafia career, he's well known as a mentally deranged psychopath. A lot of people know him as somebody that isn't smart, he's not cool, nobody likes him, nobody wants to hang out with him. The only reason that people dealt with him is because he made a lot of money and people feared him. In 1933, so one year after he caught this bullet at the grocery store, Sam Stefano received a 40 year prison term. After being found guilty of a bank robbery in New Lisbon, Wisconsin. They got away from the bank. They got away. Everything was perfect. But in like one of those comedy skits, like their getaway car broke down during the police chase. And that's how he got caught. So he gets caught because his getaway car breaks down. They tried to run. Didn't work out. So he gets put in jail 40 years. Nine years later. First of all, let me note that he's part of seven men that rape a child and he gets three years. They rob a bank, nobody gets hurt, he gets 40 years. So yeah, so he gets 40 years, great! He's off the streets 40 years! What the fuck are you gonna do after 40 years? You're gonna come out, you're gonna be an old man, you're done, right? Like, this is the end, this is great! Nope. Nine years later... Nine years! He did nine years! The police and criminal justice system had all the opportunity in the world to get this sick fuck off the streets, but they just kept letting him out and kept letting him unleash himself on the world. Like, they asked for this. Nine years after receiving his 40-year prison sentence, Governor Julius Hale commuted his sentence in December of 1942, and in December of 1944, he was officially released. Governor Julius Hale, he's not a very popular governor. He only got elected once, and this was not a popular decision to commute his sentence. So once he's released after this nine-year prison sentence that's supposed to be 40, he gets out and he gets a job at a lottery printing company. So now he's working at this lottery printing company, And he gets it in his head that it would be a great idea to print up and sell fake sugar ration stamps. Now, remember, this is during the time of World War II. Everything is rationed. So people got a certain number of sugar ration stamps, and you were able to take that and go get sugar. And because he's printing up these lottery tickets, he decides to print up these fake sugar ration stamps. And he goes out and sells them. He got caught doing this, obviously, and he ends up getting put back in jail in June of 1947. This time, he's only sentenced to one year in Leavenworth. Yet another prime opportunity to put this man away forever, and they give him one year. After serving his time, he gets out later in 1947. He doesn't even do a full year. And after he's freed, DeStefano was hired as the foreman of a Chicago garbage dump by the Chicago government. He obviously hid his criminal history from his civil service application. And they did eventually find out about this. In 1952, they found out that he had hidden his criminal history. But by that point, they decided that they weren't going to press charges. Since he still had some money left over from the bank robberies that he had pulled off... He starts investing in Chicago real estate. He purchased a 24-suite apartment complex where he utilized the rent that people were paying as a way to wash the money. So when he was going out and committing these crimes, he just used the money that he was receiving from rent from this apartment complex to legally make money that he was able to go and pay off politicians, pay off aldermen do everything that you need to do to pretend to be an upstanding citizen. As a young man, Mario, Sam's little brother, became involved in organized crime and he quickly rose through the ranks with Sam. He was known for his street smarts, his cunning, and his ability to make a deal. Pretty much him and Sam were like a package deal, they did everything together. He also, like his brother, had a knack for violence and was not afraid to use it to get whatever he wanted. He was born Mario Antonio Stefano, but he changed his middle name to Anthony so that he could sound more American and deal with other criminals that weren't only Italian. Because remember, neither of these guys are made men. They can go and deal with whoever they want to, so why not sound a little more American? In 1935, Mario Stefano, at the age of 20 years old, was found guilty of murder and was sentenced to 30 years in prison. This charge came after a robbery and a shootout in a south side saloon led to the death of one man and four additional men ended up in critical condition. During this trial, he confessed that he and his gang had committed more than 50 robberies in the three months before he was arrested. After serving only 14 years, he was released in 1949. The minute he got released, he ran into Sam's open arms, and together they began operating a loan sharking operation. And now Sam had spent this time building his own loan sharking operation, but his brother gets out, and now they're doing it together. And the DiStefano brothers, their operation quickly becomes known as one of the most prominent lending schemes in the city of Chicago. Michael had more of, like, a soft heart. Like, Mario and Sam, they were known for being, like, psychopaths. They would hurt anybody, kill anybody, do anything. They had no boundaries. But Michael was more of, like, a softy. He had feelings, emotions. He cared when he hurt people. He wasn't a born killer like the other two. And I think that's why Michael ended up becoming a drug addict. Because you can't just go around killing people and doing the crazy shit that these three brothers did together and not have some sort of fallout. Now, despite all this crazy shit that's happening and the wild lifestyle that Sam has, at the same time, he has a wife and three kids. He's residing in like a lovely little suburban home in Chicago. And to people that don't know that this guy is an insane psychopath he appears as like an average family man that is until you go into his house and go into the basement which is off limits to his family and anybody else but him if anybody ever did that They would never look at him as a normal human being. The basement of this home is where he would regularly torture and murder his victims. And this is where he just lost whatever semblance of sanity he had and turned into mad Sam DeStefano. This torture chamber basement that Sam put together, obviously the first step was to turn it soundproof and they did. He was able to do this torture chamber in his downstairs basement, and his three kids and his wife, I mean, nobody ever batted an eye. I feel like if you heard screaming and shit, like, someone would say something, even, like, the neighbors, but somehow he got this basement to actually be soundproof. The owner of a restaurant that was nearby named Artie Adler was one of his victims because he couldn't afford to make his payment. He missed one of his weekly payments. One week he didn't pay. After that, Adler was taken into Sam's basement torture chamber. As Sam began using an ice pick on him, he had a heart attack and died. The Department of Sanitation got a call in the spring about a backed up sewer and that is when Adler's perfectly preserved corpse was discovered. The body was dumped into a sewer and because it was the winter, it was perfectly preserved. It only started to show issues when the spring came and the body started to thaw. The water started to not be frozen and things started backing up. And this was a regular occurrence for Sam. He would regularly accidentally kill people. People would end up dying due to heart attacks or just like not being able to stand up to the torture and masochism he was unleashing on them. This man owned a restaurant and he missed one week of payments before his body ended up in a sewer. Like, I hate this guy. But not everybody died. Some of his victims, like Peter Capaletti, were only humiliated and tortured, and they didn't end up leaving the cellar in a body bag. Capaletti owed to Stefano $25,000, and apparently he attempted to flee with that money. Mario ended up catching him and bringing him to Cicero. He was chained to a blazing radiator after being stripped naked for three days. After three days of being strapped to a blazing radiator and who knows what other torture techniques Sam took out on him, on the evening of the third day, Stefano called this man's whole family and extended an invitation for them to come over for dinner. He said it was in honor of Capoletti. So the whole family shows up at Mario's house, and they're served this multi-course Italian supper, like a regular, you know, great dinner. People started to, like, wonder, okay, where is he? Like, you called us here to celebrate this special host, and he's not here. Where the fuck is he? But Sam's like, oh, don't worry. He'll be here shortly. Like, he's just running a little late. No biggie. Just go ahead and eat. Everything's fine. After dinner was over, the severely burned and naked Peter Capaletti was led into the kitchen and just kind of like tossed at his mom's feet. There's argument over what happened after that. Some people say that Sam pushed the rest of his family to urinate on him. Some people say that Sam urinated on him in front of his whole family. Like, it doesn't really matter. There was some kind of urination that took place on this severely burned naked man in front of an entire family. But Capuletti swore that he was going to make it right, and Sam allowed him to live. And he just kind of used Capuletti as an example of like, look, I'll do this shit to you. Do not mess with me. Do not not pay me. This is what's going to happen to you, and the message was received, loud and clear. Sam's mom passed away on October thirteenth, 1960, at 80 years old in Chicago. Rosalie Stefano was buried in Queen of Heaven Catholic Cemetery Hillside in Cook County, Illinois. During the early 60s, Sam was a leading loan shark for the outfit. Most of the people that he lent money to were small-time criminals, politicians, lawyers, and he also had the people that were committing crimes and being brought to his house by the policemen. He's charging these astronomical interest rates, but he's also willing to work with anybody that everybody else is not. He's starting relationships where he's lending money to drug addicts or businessmen that have a history of defaulting on other lenders. And Sam takes this on happily because he looks at it like, if either one of two things is going to happen, you're going to pay me and I'm going to make money, or I get to have fun hurting you. There was a lot of people that said that while he tortured his victims, he would foam at the mouth. One time, a reporter named William Doherty made the stupid mistake of publishing a critical article on Stefano in the Chicago Tribune. And we all know what the outcome of this is going to be. Stefano did assault Doherty, and the situation even got to the point of DiStefano pursuing Doherty with a gun and threatened his whole family. It ended with De Stefano smashing the windows of Doherty's car, which was parked nearby. In nineteen sixty two, Stefano was arrested in Rockford, Illinois, because he had attempted to represent Vito Zaccaganini in a forgery trial. He is not a licensed attorney and he has no legal training, but he real life gets up in court. And attempts to act as Zakaganini's lawyer. Like, hello, Your Honor, I am the fucking lawyer. Like, what are you doing? His involvement in the trial was uncovered and he was arrested and charged with forgery and for practicing law without a law license. Like, you freaking psychopath! When he was charged, DiStefano turned around and demanded the names of all employees in the state attorneys and sheriff's offices so that they could all be called as witnesses at the subsequent trial. His demands were obviously not met, and he was eventually convicted and sentenced to federal prison time because he's not a lawyer! So that's where I'm going to stop for the day, because as I said in the beginning, this is going to be a two-part episode. So I think this is a good stopping point. We're going to go ahead and stop there and start up next week on the part two. Again, with how many people requested this episode, I'm hoping that you guys all want to hear about him so much that a two-part episode is a great thing. So I'm going to go ahead and get off of here. Please don't forget to like, share, comment, subscribe, follow, do all the things, and I'll see you next week. Bye!